Hello, Spark. Great to see you here today. I'm actually glad summer's over. And the reason is, we're beginning to fill up a little bit more in Spark, uh, here at Spark. Uh, as summer went along, we all took a turn, went on vacation, we're gone for a while. If you haven't, you should. I know for my wife, uh, we did. Actually, in June, at the end of June, we went up to Cannon Beach, Oregon, if you've ever heard of that. It is breathtaking with these you know, wide kind of Southern California beaches with gorgeous waves that are cracking down. And then they've got this unique rock mountain of stone, which you can kind of see here in this picture. So just a beautiful location. And it was mostly sunny, but of course we're in Oregon. So there were times we would go back to our Airbnb, we'd kind of snuggle up together with some hot chocolates, some blankets, and we would work on uh, puzzles, lots of puzzles. And the, the thing about puzzles is they are a little tedious. They take some time, but I think it ultimately is very rewarding when you get it all done, see what you did, and you see this beautiful picture, this full picture. There's a question a lot of people have about Jesus inside the church and outside the church, and I will put it like this. A lot of people are puzzled, and they wonder, why did people decide that Jesus was more than a man, that he was divine? And what difference does it make? And these people, they're probably thinking, well, Jesus, he was a good person, and he taught about love and God and the golden rule and being a good Samaritan and turning the other cheek. But the idea that he was divine or the son of God or the second person of the Trinity, whatever that means, just sounds kind of weird. It makes Christianity exclude people who can't believe that stuff about Jesus. And some people might say, isn't it true all that stuff about Jesus being the son of God actually got made up centuries after his death? And isn't it true when people wrote the Gospels, they would take passages from the Old Testament, Testament and kind of twist them around to make it sound like they were predicting Jesus? These are really important questions about the identity of that man, Jesus. What's fascinating is if you read through the Gospels, you see the question of Jesus' identity puzzled people in that day just like it puzzles people in our day, too. For example, one time John the Baptist was in prison. John had baptized Jesus, and he expected great things about him. But Jesus didn't do what John thought he would. So John, from prison, he sends his followers to ask Jesus a very direct question. He says, are you the one who was to come, or should we wait for somebody else? This is John the Baptist. And Jesus, he replies in a very strange, a mysterious way. He says to them, go back and report to John what you see and hear. This is odd. Jesus deliberately doesn't say yes or no. It's kind of like he's saying, you're going to have to think more deeply about this question. A similar conversation happens in our text for today in John 10, which says, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. 
It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. These details are so loaded. The Feast of Dedication is what we would call Hanukkah. It's when Israel would celebrate something that happened many years earlier when they had won their independence from Syria. So it's kind of like the 4th of July for them. And here's Jesus, who everybody is wondering, who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? Is he going to lead us to freedom? And Jesus, he's not just in Jerusalem and not just in the temple, which is ground zero for their hopes for independence, but he is walking around in what's called Solomon's Colonnade. Some of you will remember Solomon was the son of David. And Israel is waiting for a son of David who will free them. And Jesus, he is sending really loud signals. That's why those who were there gathered around Jesus are saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. But Jesus doesn't tell them plainly. His response is, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. It's almost like Jesus is saying, because you all have the wrong idea about who the Messiah is going to be, you're waiting for the wrong thing. A plain yes or a plain no would mislead you, so I'm going to have to engage with you. I'm going to have to change your concept of what it means to be the Messiah. Here's another strange statement Jesus made where another group of people were wrestling with his identity because they didn't seem to obey what Moses said about the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Now, that's weird. Why does Jesus say that? Because if you read the book of books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, and so on, Jesus doesn't show up there. So why does he say, Moses wrote about me? Good question. A great book by a theologian named Richard Hayes is called Reading Backwards. Hayes describes how the disciples, how Jesus' followers had to kind of piece together his identity to answer the question, who is this man? Which is very much like putting pieces together in a jigsaw puzzle. The book, the book says, here's what went on. Jesus' followers were driven by the extraordinary things that Jesus did, and then they went back to the Old Testament scriptures to read those scriptures again. They looked at Jesus in light of those scriptures, and they looked at those scriptures again in light of Jesus. And they were slowly, haltingly, incredibly, inexorably driven to one conclusion about who this man is, who changed the world and changes it still. So today, we won't start at that conclusion, but we'll end up there. What does it look like to read backwards? How about this? I want to give you just one picture as we get ready to walk through this sermon to illustrate the idea of reading backwards. And to be fully candid, I may have taken some liberties with my story. When my daughter Courtney was a little girl, she just loved Elvis Presley songs. 
She would laugh and dance and sing, and her all-time favorite Elvis Presley song was Can't Help Falling in Love. I remember sitting with her as a child and listening to this song, especially where it says, like a river flows, surely to the sea. Darling, so it goes, some things are meant to be. Take my hand, take my whole life too, for I can't help falling in love with you. Now, I didn't anticipate this, but I actually got choked up because I just started thinking about my beautiful little child and how she's going to grow up someday, and some great man is going to come along, and she is going to leave me. And I thought, what if he's not a great guy? What if he's more like Elvis with lots of girlfriends and drinking and smoking and drugs, and he's always going around shaking his hips? I'm in tears, and my daughter asked me, Daddy, what's the matter When I tried to explain it to her, she said what all little children say to their parents in moments like this. No, Daddy, I want to live with you forever. Can't I do that? Because you are the strongest, bravest, smartest, cleverest man in the whole world. I said, well, you think that now, but someday things are going to look different for you. You're going to change. Puberty's going to come, and then you'll awaken to romance and hormones and all kinds of stuff you can't imagine right now. But you'll know it when you see it. And of course, she grew up. And one day, a great guy came, and his name is Wally, and he's really a great man. This song, it still has the same old words it did a long time ago. But now these old words have been given an additional layer of meaning. She has lived her part of the story. And now she knows who this great man is, who she fell in love with. Now that song is her song. And so reading backwards the story of Jesus is what I want to look at with you today. And this is such an important message for so many people who struggle with who is Jesus And why does it matter? And how did people come to believe these strange things about him? I want to walk through that, but I'm only going to look at a few of the important puzzle pieces because we can't cover them all. We just don't have time. I want to do this so that you will know why Jesus' followers became astounded at his identity. And then I want to tell you why I think it matters. The first puzzle piece is at the very start of the Bible. God creates human beings. There's the fall. The human race is all messed up. God comes to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, God says immediately after the fall to the serpent... To the embodiment of evil and darkness, your days are numbered. Sin and death are going to reign in my world for a while. But one day, a great man is going to come along, a son of man, an offspring of Eve and Adam with real flesh and blood, kind of a second Adam, a new Adam. And there will be enmity. That is, he will do battle with you and he will crush your head. And he's going to win. The reign of death and sin is going to end. And healing will come to my creation through him. But he will strike 
his heel. This man, he will be a healer, but he will be a wounded healer. I find this verse exhilarating and huge in its meaning that even before the echoes of the first sin having faded away, God has promised the human race a redeemer is on his way. And true enough, one day a wounded healer came and Jesus' followers were driven by the strange things he said and did. And so they went back and looked again at Genesis 3.15. And very early on, after Jesus, this verse and the importance of this verse got a fancy name. Followers of Jesus called it the Proto-Evangelium. Proto from first, like prototype, and Evangelium from Evangel, meaning gospel or good news. Meaning, this verse is the first telling of the gospel, the good news, and it came as soon as sin happened. Here's another puzzle piece. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, someday everything is going to be the way God wants it to be. That's God reigning. Someday there's going to be shalom. No more violence, no more oppressing the poor or racial divisions or greed. They call that the kingdom of God, the reign of God. We're up there is coming down here someday. That was Isaiah. Now to Jesus, centuries later, the New Testament writers writing within a generation of Jesus' life give a very consistent summary of his basic message. And his basic message was not Now, everybody be nicer. No. Mark 1 says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. That's language from Isaiah. The good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Our God reigns. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is claiming what Isaiah prophesied, the reign of God, what all the prophets said was coming someday, is now being fulfilled before your very eyes. Of course, everybody would wonder, why does he say that? Rome is still in charge. Everything is a mess. What has changed? Only one thing. Jesus is here. He's claiming to be the bringer of the kingdom of God. He walked around and claimed the kingdom of God, the sphere in which God's will for love and justice and goodness and kindness will triumph and will reign, has now arrived on earth through his body and through his life and through his words. I want to pause here for just a minute. Thomas Jefferson had great regard for Jesus as a teacher. He said his moral teachings were the most sublime, the most inspiring the human race has ever heard. But Jefferson thought that any claims that Jesus was divine were just superstitious and not worthy of him. Jefferson actually wrote his own Bible. You can buy this Bible on Amazon, if you wish, for $5. And Jefferson, get this, he literally got out a razor and a Bible and cut out 
all of the healings, all of the miracles, all the resurrection, the prophecies, and just kept the ethical teaching. Basically, just be kind, be nice, be good to the poor. Here's the problem. In Thomas Jefferson's Bible, Jesus' teaching begins with this statement, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is the place where God reigns. Jefferson left that in, but you will notice Jesus didn't say, now everybody be nice to the poor in spirit. Jesus wasn't giving instructions for people to be nicer here. He's not giving instructions at all. He's making a claim about how things are, that the poor in spirit are those everybody in our world seems to look down upon. But now the forgotten and the marginalized are actually blessed. Why are they blessed? Because now the kingdom of God is available to them. Why is it available to them? Because Jesus is here. Here's another piece of the puzzle. In the gospel of Mark, after Jesus performed a healing, he asked his disciples, because they would see him do these extraordinary things, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Peter gets so many things wrong, and he finally gets one answer right. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody you got it right. Why? Jesus believes he is the Messiah. And this is kind of staggering, but just think about this historically Jesus believes every single human being in Israel but him has the wrong idea of who the Messiah is. So he began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, really. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. In fact, Peter took him aside to rebuke him. Jesus, what are you doing? Nobody's going to join a movement with a Messiah who has to suffer and die. The reason Peter rebukes him is no one expected a crucified Messiah. By definition, if you got crucified, you weren't the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be the one who overthrew Israel's enemies. And Rome was quite deliberate about this. Being crucified was Rome's little message to you, hey, you're not the Messiah. Jesus is buying time while he gives the idea of Messiah a makeover. So a little group of people might understand and be able to carry on while he's gone. Another piece of the puzzle a prophet named Zechariah, way back in the Old Testament days, had said, when the Messiah comes, he will bring peace. And Zechariah used striking image. He said, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. The idea being expressed here is Israel's king is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. He will defeat their enemies. He will be victorious, and then he will bring peace. When that happens, there will be a big parade, and the Messiah will come riding into town on a donkey. 
The reason for the donkey thing is because if you're riding a donkey, you're not going to fight anybody. In that day, if you went into battle, you didn't go into a battle on a donkey, you went on a horse. It's kind of like in our day, the difference between a tank and a Prius. A Prius gives you great fuel efficiency, but it has weak acceleration. Nobody goes into battle on a Prius. Maybe a Hummer, preferably a tank, but not a Prius. In the New Testament, Jesus is going into Jerusalem. It's Passover. Israel is a powder keg, and he knows this. Israel is waiting for a Messiah who will free them from Rome. It's Passover. Like their hero Moses who freed them from Egypt, they are waiting for a hero, Jesus, who will free them from Caesar like the hero Moses freed them from Pharaoh. It's a powder keg. He knows it, and he's going there. So Jesus says to his disciples, go to the village. You will find a donkey with her colt tied there. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And then Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds go crazy. But here's what's strange, and nobody thinks about this until after. He's riding into town on a donkey. He hasn't fought yet. He hasn't beaten Rome, and he must be really confident because nobody would go into battle without a sword and riding on a donkey. That would be a good way to get yourself killed. Who is this man? When Matthew says this act fulfills what was spoken through the prophet, he is not saying Zechariah predicted this moment, like someone predicts a football score and it magically validates the Bible. He is saying Jesus understood. Jesus alone got it that God's plan from the beginning was to bring his kingdom into this world, to right all wrongs, to overcome sin, not through power, violence, and coercion, but through suffering love as a wounded healer. After Jesus' death and resurrection, his followers began to remember all of these strange things, like Jesus riding into town on a donkey before the battle. They also remembered that many centuries ago, the prophet Isaiah spoke about God's servant having to suffer. Isaiah wrote, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. After he, was, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. They understand this passage now in light of the strange man, Jesus, and they understand Jesus differently now in light of this passage. They're putting the puzzle together. This is how it worked. Another piece of the puzzle Old Testament scriptures would talk about God's power over nature. The psalmist talks about this for people caught on the sea in a great storm. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still. He that is God made the waves of the sea still. Back to Jesus. 
The Gospel of Mark says one day the disciples are in the boat. They're with Jesus. A storm comes, and they are terrified. They cried out to Jesus. Jesus, he got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down. It was completely calm. Yet they were terrified. Do you think they were afraid when the storm was raging? They were actually more scared when the storm was done and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus is a storm calmer. Here's another piece of the puzzle. The God of Israel revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai way back at the beginning as the one who alone forgives sin. Part of the great gift of Israel to the world is what's sometimes called ethical monotheism. That there's one God, not a tribe of gods, not a pantheon. There is one God, one great God and creator, and he is good. And that idea changed the world because this God loves, this God forgives sins. The God of Israel is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now to Jesus, in the seventh chapter of Luke, Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house. There's a woman there, publicly known for her bad character. She comes and she weeps at Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. There's a religious leader there too. And he says, who is this guy? If Jesus was really a prophet, he would know this woman touching him was a sinner and he would run the other way because that's what godly people do. Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Who is this? The other guests began to say among themselves, who even forgives sins. Jesus, he is the sin forgiver. Here's another piece of the puzzle. And stick with me. Puzzles take time. I've got four more pieces that I need to put together for you to summarize this and make the full picture. When the God of Israel forgave sins, how did he do it? And where did he do it? He did it through the temple, which is a huge part of the Old Testament. The temple in the Hebrew scriptures was to embody God's presence on earth. That was God's greatest message to say, I want to be with you. That was my plan from the beginning. And here's the temple to show, I want to be with you on earth. At the same time, the prophets were always warning, judgment is going to come to the temple because Israel corrupted its religion. And to be frank, like all religions where power and money and prestige can so easily corrupt, where the focus is not on God, but on other things. The prophets would say, do not say the temple of the Lord and think you are safe. Judgment is coming to the temple. And sure enough, one day Jesus brings a whip into the temple. Some of you may remember Kevin telling the story earlier in our John series how the temple was turned into a marketplace, an emporium. Jesus is saying symbolically, the judgment warned about so long ago has now arrived in the temple. 
And when people challenged him, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, they replied. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. What scripture? This is not some isolated prediction. The whole thing, the whole Old Testament was about God wanting to be with the people that he loves. And now he is through Jesus. This is another puzzle piece. Jesus is the new temple. What the temple was, Jesus is. What the temple did, Jesus does. Up there has come down here, God with us, Emmanuel, one puzzle piece after another. In John 6, people ask Jesus for a sign, like Moses gave Israel the sign of manna. That's a great sign. Jesus says the whole manna deal, the bread of God, is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's what bread does. It nourishes. It nurtures. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. I alone can satisfy your soul. And they thought, who is this man? And so we come to the biggest puzzle piece. Jesus dies, and with him, all the hopes of his followers die. On the third day, he's resurrected. But if you look carefully at the Gospels, his followers' immediate response to his resurrection on the day it happened might surprise you. In the Gospel of Mark, generally understood to be the first Gospel written, the women go to the tomb, and on the third day, a young man tells them, Jesus is not here. He has risen. Go tell his disciples. I'm about to read for you a verse, Mark 16, Mark 16 verse 8, that many theologians believe is actually the last verse in the entire Gospel of Mark. It says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. That's how the oldest manuscript ends on Mark. What kind of ending is that? Where's that happy Easter, they all lived happily ever after stuff? This is strange, right? You can check this out in your Bible. It appears that many decades later, some scribes wrote additional material to tack on to what was already written to make it a happier ending. You will often be able to see this in your Bible where you'll, you'll note a little footnote that says these verses are not in the earliest manuscripts. What's going on? When Jesus rose on that day, no one knew what it meant yet. There were some people in Israel who expected there to be a resurrection, but anybody who expected a resurrection expected that it, when it came, it would come for everybody. It would come all at once, and it would be very dramatic, and it would coincide with when Israel defeats its enemies, and the temple is cleaned up, and everything is set right no one expected a crucified Messiah, and no one expected a resurrected Messiah this way. 
they would have to figure it out. We actually see this happening in Luke. After the resurrection, there are two disciples walking to Emmaus. And they're trying to figure out what the reports on the empty tomb mean. They've heard about it. They know the tomb is empty, but they don't know what it means. So they were actually despondent. They're not happy. And then Jesus appears to them, but they don't know it's Jesus. And he asks them, what are you talking about? One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And so they tell Jesus what happened, but they still don't know what it means. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved just to be there in that little Bible study that Jesus was just having? Can you imagine the words from Jesus and what he might say? Here's the whole thing. Here's what the whole thing means. And the whole thing was talking about what I have come to bring to earth. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning with us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jesus opens their eyes to the scriptures, and the scriptures open their eyes to Jesus, and suddenly they can see that he is the death defeater. He's the one. Didn't our hearts burn slowly, haltingly, incredibly, inexorably by reading backwards and putting the puzzle pieces together? His followers are driven to a realization that continues to rock the world and change lives even today. That's why in Jesus, God has come to earth. He is the kingdom bringer. He is the bread of life. He is the sin forgiver. He is the storm calmer. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. He is the wounded healer. The reason this matters is not because God is going to give everybody a theology test on Jesus' identity. And if you get the answer right, something good happens to you. The reason this matters is not so people can say, well, I am a Christian and I believe the right stuff. I'm right and you're wrong. The reason this matters is so we can, to the best of our ability and to the fullness of our faith, put the puzzle pieces together and see the full picture that Jesus is true and real and divine, which is a great segue into our time of communion Because God wants to be with us. Emmanuel, up there, has come down here. Which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, And gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
All are welcome at the table.